Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Why is there so much polarization in the world? And what does this have to do with the brain? And what does any of this have to do with how you picture a cat or why we respond to certain cartoons or the British nobleman, Lord Gordon, or the Iroquois Native Americans? And why do you naturally feel that everyone who disagrees with you is a troll or misinformed? And if you could just shout loudly enough in all caps on Twitter, they would see that you're right. Why can't they see that you know the truth? Welcome to Inner Cosmos with me, David Eagleman. I'm a neuroscientist and an author at Stanford University, and I've spent my whole career studying the intersection between how the brain works and how we experience life. It hasn't escaped anybody's notice that we are in a time in which polarization and disagreement is higher than most of us have seen in our lives so far. And so in the past decade, I've become very interested in the brain science behind that, behind polarization, and more generally, how we come to believe our own political opinions and why we're so certain that everyone else is wrong and how if we could just talk to them, if they could just listen to us, they would see the light 
and they would know that we are right and they were mistaken. Now, I want to set the stage. Polarization is not a new thing. Although we are in a polarized era right now, this is far from unique. Just think about the civil war in America where you had brothers and neighbors taking up arms against one another. Or in the 1960s and 70s, people here held vastly different opinions about the war in Vietnam and how to treat the returning soldiers. Or take stuff that's even bigger, like Nazism in Germany, which was the most advanced country in Europe. The thing to recognize is that in the 1934 elections in Germany, every single seat in the Reichstag, the German parliament, was either Communist Party, far left, or National Socialist Party, far right. Or look more generally at the whole 20th century, the communist revolution in China or in the USSR or the Hutu massacre of the Tutsi in Rwanda or the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia and on and on. There's nothing new about polarization and people taking up arms. And what I want to talk about today is why. So the question on lots of people's minds seems to be, is this because of social media? I don't think that has much of anything to do with it. Keep in mind that all the examples I just named preceded Twitter and Facebook, and those were much worse than what we have going on currently. The fact is, it doesn't take much to get people all worked up over different opinions and taking up arms, and you don't need social media for that. And my goal today is to explain why it is so easy for people to get so worked up and believe their truth. So this is what we're going to explore. Why does everyone have different opinions? And why does everyone with a different opinion to yours seem misinformed or obstreperous or like a troll? So I'll start with a cartoon and a story. The cartoon was one that I saw recently on Twitter. It shows a bunch of people walking on a road and up ahead, there's a fork in the road. And off to one side, there's a small number of smart, thoughtful people that are following a windy path marked complex but right. And on the other side of the fork, there's a very packed group of people and they're all walking and it's labeled simple but wrong. And this takes them to a cliff that they eventually tumble off of. Now, I'm going to come back to this cartoon later. And when I come back, we're going to understand this in a slightly different way. But first, I want to turn to the story, which is a true story. Many years ago, I got my PhD in neuroscience. I was a second-year graduate student when the new class of first-year students came in. And one student really stood out, and I'm going to call her Tanya. She seemed very sweet, and what we found out was that Tanya had extraordinary grades, and she'd come from a very impoverished neighborhood in Chicago. But she had these incredible grades and these incredible letters of recommendation and great scores on her GREs. So during the first month or two of school, she was given a special award and there was going to be a banquet for it. And to my surprise, she asked me if I would be her date to the banquet. So I said, yes, I didn't know her well, but I thought she seemed very sweet. And so I said, yes. So the banquet was supposed to be on Friday of that week. But as it turns out, the banquet never happened. Why? It's because on Tuesday of that week, Tanya was in the women's restroom with one of the administrators at the school, and they started talking. The administrator said, wow, Tanya, everything is so amazing about you and your grades and your skills. I want to know 
how your school cultivated a thinker like you. And so Tanya just had some humble answer. And so this administrator decided she was going to call the school and find out how they produced somebody like Tanya. So she calls to talk to one of the professors that wrote a letter of recommendation for Tanya. And so she dials up and she gets a secretary and she asks to speak to the professor. And the secretary says, who? And the administrator repeats the name. I'm looking for Professor So-and-so. And the woman on the other end says, there's nobody here by that name. So the administrator says, yeah, this is the professor that wrote this letter. And the secretary says, I've worked here 30 years and there is nobody here by this name. So it turned out to be a fake letter of recommendation. So the administrator calls the second letter of recommendation. Same story. So she calls the third recommender and gets connected. And it turns out that it was Tanya's mother's office. And so what quickly became unraveled is that Tanya had faked everything, her transcript, her GREs. And this was, by the way, back in the 90s. So she did this by digitally scanning her GREs and then changing them with early versions of Photoshop and then reprinting them. Anyway, one of my colleagues quipped that she should get a PhD just for the cleverness of her deception. But the thing that struck me was how blind we all were to the deception. We were completely fooled by it. So anyway, the graduate school said to her, whoa, there's something really strange here and you have to come up with an explanation for this. And Tanya just ran away. But one of my classmates caught her on the way out the door and she had an excuse for everything. And she said, I got screwed by this person and, and this person cheated me and I thought they were writing a real letter and I thought the school was accredited, but they lied to me. So she had an excuse for everything. Now, obviously the details of this story stuck with me through the years because I had almost gone on a date with this girl. Anyway, that was the end of the Tanya story. Or so I thought. A couple of years later, someone pointed me to an article from the Yale University newspaper and that's how we learned that Tanya had left our school and gone to Yale next and faked her way into graduate school there. And Yale had caught her. This was just like the first time, but Yale was mad because they had been paying her a stipend. And so they put her in jail. And I pictured the girl that I almost went on a date with sitting on a cement bench in jail. And the next newspaper article I found showed that in jail... Tanya had bitten two guards. And at some point she was released from jail and then we heard nothing about her after that. Until two years later, because Tanya went home to where she lived in Chicago and she and her mother decided to do a big drug deal with two men who turned out to be undercover agents and they got caught and she was going to be sentenced for a long time. And so she and her cousin came up with an idea. So they went out and they found a woman who was a drug addict who was approximately her size and looked a bit like her. And they said, hey, we're going to give you free drugs if you come to the dentist. And she said she was doing an insurance scam. And she said, come to the dentist and say that your name is my name. And she had the woman wearing gloves to the dentist office so there wouldn't be any fingerprints. And she accompanied her and she signed the paperwork for her. And then after they had the imprints, they brought this woman home and they smashed her on the head with a brick and they injected her with a bunch of insulin to make her pass out. That's all they had access to and that's why they used the insulin. And their plan was 
to kill this woman and burn the body so that the dental imprints would be found and they would conclude that Tanya was dead and then she wouldn't have to go to jail. As it turns out, this poor woman eventually came to in the basement of Tanya's cousin's house and she managed to scramble out of the window and she ran across the street to a Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant. She screamed for help and Tanya realized that the woman had just escaped and she ran into the Kentucky Fried Chicken right after her and started screaming that the woman had stolen her money and everything was very confusing, but the police showed up and they couldn't figure out what was happening, so they arrested everyone. Here was this woman with blood all over her. So they just took everyone into the station. And eventually, the whole thing became unraveled. And everyone involved in this case was jaw-dropped as this story unfolded. The ease and creativity with which Tanya thought of a plan that went, okay, how about I just kill this woman and then burn the body? And when you burn the body, the dental imprints are the things that last. And so because this woman had gone to the dentist under Tanya's name, then the world would conclude I'm dead and then I won't go to jail. And I was thinking, wow, I almost went on a date with this woman. So this was one of the moments in my life when I was struck by how different people can be on the inside and how little insight we have into the cosmos of someone else's brain and mind. And happily, this was positioned at the very beginning of my neuroscience career, and it influenced what I've been studying since. It has always struck me as fascinating, the differences between people. Everyone is very different on the inside, sometimes much more than we expect. Now, it turns out my father was a forensic psychiatrist, and he was involved in most of the big mass murder cases in New Mexico, where I grew up. One of them was a guy named William Wayne Gilbert, who had killed three people, cold-blooded murder, and my father became the psychiatrist in that case. Now, I was a child, and we went to some social event with my father, and I remember somebody saying to my father... Gilbert should not get the death penalty because presumably he feels terrible for what he's done. Presumably he feels deep regret for having killed three people. And as a kid, I remember totally feeling like I agreed with that. But I remembered my father's surprise at the statement because my father had just spent hours in deposition with Gilbert and he explained to this man genuinely and professionally that it simply wasn't the case that Gilbert had regret. Because when William Wayne Gilbert would think about the idea of going to murder somebody, he said he had the same level of excitement that he did as a child on the night before Christmas. That's what it felt like for him when he was thinking of killing someone. And so my father's point to this man and to me when I was eight years old is, you can't actually stick yourself in other people's shoes as much as you'd like to. You think everybody's just like me, especially when you're a child. But in fact, people can be quite different on the inside. And it turns out that the governor of New Mexico at the time commuted William Wayne Gilbert's sentence since he was sentenced to death. So Gilbert was not going to die now. And to show his gratitude, he managed to smuggle a pistol into the prison and led one of the most stunning prison breaks from a maximum security penitentiary where he let out several other murderers. And so for a few months, it was very tense in New Mexico 
because there was this group of mass murderers on the loose. They were finally found again, but only after this very scary month or two where they were hiding out and taking hostages. So all this stuff really got me thinking from a young age about the differences between people. So I'll just mention one more anecdote here. My father deposed a guy who was on trial. This guy had gone into a Western Union office and asked the clerk to use the phone. And the clerk had said, sorry, but the phone is only for the back office people and not for customers. So this guy jumped the counter and beat the clerk almost to death. And the interesting part is that he said to my father during the deposition, but anybody would have done the same thing in that situation, right? And he meant it. He was being genuine because we all have an internal model of the world, what constitutes appropriate behavior in the world. And we assume that everyone else's model is the same as ours. And this guy genuinely could not imagine anyone having a different reaction in that circumstance. Now, when we think about the differences between people, we're used to thinking about extreme cases like Tanya or William Wayne Gilbert or this guy in the Western Union office. These people presumably have psychopathy and psychopaths make up about 1% of the population. These are people who simply don't care about your feelings. You're just an obstacle that they're trying to get around to get what they want. But this idea that other people can be different from you on the inside can be generalized. So take something like schizophrenia. You see a man on the street corner and he's yelling. He's in an angry dialogue with somebody who's not there. He's delusional. He's not in contact with reality. So in situations like this, you look at the man and you say, okay, I guess that man's internal model isn't the same as mine. He's not experiencing reality the same way I do. So you might think, okay, I get that about different models on the inside for psychopaths and for people with schizophrenia. But otherwise, the intuition is that the rest of us are all about the same. But there are some important things to note here. First, when it comes to something like psychopathy or schizophrenia, we tend to think about these as being categories like, okay, that person's psychopathic and I'm not, or that person is schizophrenic and I'm not. But in fact, all of these things are now appreciated as living on a spectrum. So you have different degrees along the spectrum. So take psychopathy, for example. There's a well-used way to measure this. It's a questionnaire and you score a certain number of points on this from one to 40. And in the United States, if you're above a 30, then you are labeled a psychopath. But you don't want to be roommates with the guy who scores 29 on this test, even though they're not technically a psychopath. They share a lot of the fundamental characteristics. So it's a spectral issue. And by the way, this is the same with everything in psychiatry. This has been the direction of the Bible of psychiatry called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It used to be all about categories, and now everything is about living on a spectrum. But let's keep drilling down. When we look at mental illnesses more generally, we find things that influence people's thoughts or feelings or behaviors, including not just things like schizophrenia or psychopathy, but you presumably know people with clinical depression or bipolar disorder or anxiety disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder or borderline or narcissistic or avoidant or an eating disorder or dissociative identity disorder or panic disorder, 
or many other things like that. There are at least 157 of these in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. So it becomes increasingly difficult to assert that everybody is exactly like you on the inside. Despite superficial appearances, people can be very different in terms of what is happening on the inside. And if you've read my books or listened to my other podcasts, you know that when we see people with tumors or strokes or brain injuries to different parts of the brain, it's not hard to say, oh, I guess their reality is a little bit different than mine. But it proves harder to think about this in terms of everybody that you know and love because we assume that the people in our lives have essentially the same thing going on on the inside that we do, the same opinions, the same way of sense-making, the same way of gathering meaning, the same political views on the world as you do. But they don't. Everyone that you know is having a slightly different reality going on than you are. We are very different people on the inside. Now, I want to be clear that I'm not just saying this as a philosophical claim. We can increasingly measure so many examples of this. And this is something I've worked on in my lab for most of my career. Neuroscience has always cared about the big disorders, the things that are most obvious and societally costly. But when we start looking at the more innocuous details, we uncover these clear and measurable ways that reality can be different inside different heads. So for example, imagine that you and I and a bunch of other people are looking over Times Square in New York. We're standing on a corner and enjoying watching the crowd. So you open your eyes and there's the world and all its blues and golds and greens. But if you happen to be colorblind, you're seeing it differently than the person next to you. Maybe you can't distinguish reds from greens. Those look exactly the same to you. Or maybe you have a more extreme form of colorblindness in which there are no colors at all, just shades of gray. So for you and the person next to you, the internal experience can be quite different, even though you're looking at the same scene. And we now know that a small fraction of the female population has not just three types of color photoreceptors in their eyes and their retinas, but four types of color photoreceptors, which means they are seeing colors that the rest of us can't even imagine. This is called tetrachromacy, and I'll come back to this in a future episode. But the point I want to make now is that we might all be watching the same corner in Times Square, but having totally different internal experiences. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. 
This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Hey guys, it's Ray from the Bobby Bone Show here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Let's go! Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the hills to the trails all over. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander, with three spacious rows of seating, up to eight passengers, yeah. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer, check out amazing national sales event deals on RAV4s, Highlanders, and more. Visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. This is the type of issue that I've been studying in my lab for many years. So you might have heard about my episode on synesthesia. In synesthesia, people have a blending of the senses. About 3% of the population will, for example, see a letter on a page, and that'll trigger a color experience for them on the inside. So maybe S triggers a purple for you and L triggers a green experience and so on. It's different for every synesthete. And there are many forms of synesthesia. You might hear a sound and that triggers a visual experience or you taste something and it puts a feeling on your fingertips. Essentially, any sense can end up having crosstalk with any other sense in these different forms of synesthesia. And my colleagues and I have documented dozens and dozens of forms throughout the population. Now, Synesthesia is not considered a disease or a disorder. It is simply an alternative reality. The point is that people can have very different experiences on the inside. But to a synesthete, their experience is precisely as real as anything you might experience. So in neuroscience, this is just one more recent appreciation that from one person to the next, reality can be a little bit different. And let me give you one more example that's even newer, the issue of how we imagine a visual scene inside our heads. So I'm going to ask you to picture this. Picture a gray and white cat on a picnic table eating colorful cereal and looking at you suspiciously. So really picture that in your head. 
Now, there were two researchers who began looking at this question of mental imagery some years ago, Stephen Coslin and Zenon Felician, and they ended up disagreeing very strongly. Coslin said, when you're imaging something, you're essentially running your visual cortex to see this like a movie. It's like vision. And Felician said, that's ridiculous. You're not seeing something. It's purely conceptual. It doesn't involve seeing and vision. And they both did experiments back and forth. And Felician said, look, you're insane. It's not stored like a picture. And Coslin said, no, you're insane. It's not stored like a proposition. You're actually seeing it. And it was very difficult for a conclusion to be reached here. Both argued passionately for their side of the argument. And this went on for 20 years in the literature. So why couldn't they come to an agreement on this? The answer is, Coslin had what we now call hyperphantasia, which means he has extremely vivid mental imagery. When he imagines something, it's as vivid as real seeing. Now, this is the opposite of what Felician had, which is called aphantasia, where mental visual imagery is not present. He doesn't see anything in particular. He just has a concept. And all of this lives on a spectrum from hyperphantasia to aphantasia. Everyone in the population is somewhere on this spectrum. So think about this for a moment. Picture an ant crawling on a checkered tablecloth towards a jar of purple jelly. Are you closer to the hyperphantasia side where you're seeing it like a movie or are you closer to the aphantasia side where you can understand the concept perfectly fine, but you're not seeing anything? So my lab has studied this in detail, and we use neuroimaging to figure out what's going on in the brain along this spectrum. But what I want to focus on today is why there was such a spirited debate in the literature for two decades before anyone realized there was a spectrum. It's because both researchers were operating under the assumption that everyone else experiences visual imagery just like they do. So when Felician introspected, he wasn't seeing a picture, and so he felt clear that other people don't either. And when Coslin introspected, he was seeing a super clear image, and he assumed that's what happens inside every head. And I want to use the debate between them as a more general metaphor that we all assume that everyone else is experiencing the world the way we do. My point in talking about color vision and synesthesia and visual imagery is this. As neuroscience and psychology move on from studying the really big disorders, we find increasingly more subtle issues, which cause us to say, wow, I didn't realize that someone could experience so differently than I do. But the fact is that everyone is having a different internal experience. And this led me to search for a good metaphor. And when I saw the movie poster for The Martian, I thought, oh, that's it, because the poster shows a single person, Matt Damon, walking around on his own planet. He's the only one there. And I thought, that's the perfect model. We're each living on our own planet. We're each having our experiences. And we think, yeah, this is reality. And it makes sense that everyone has the same experience that I do. But in fact, just like in any galaxy, each planet is pretty different. Everyone's got their own atmosphere, their own landscape, their own experiences. But we always feel certain that he or she feels exactly the same way that I do about whatever. Take, for example, what comes to mind when I say the word 
justice. What happens inside everyone's head is slightly different. Or fairness. What comes to your mind? It might not be the same thing that comes to someone else's. Or attractiveness. Or love. Home. Freedom. Success. These concepts are triggering different neural networks in different people. They trigger different meaning, which is tied to your whole personal history and your aspirations. But we assume when we use words that the other person knows exactly what we mean. We operate under the assumption that words mean the same thing to me that they do to you. But in fact, that never happens because we each have different internal lives. And one of the ways that you can always appreciate this is just look around you the next time you're in the bookstore or the library. There are so many different sections and nobody walks in and explores all the sections equally. Instead, people go in and they go straight to the section they want, the thing that resonates with their internal model of the world, mysteries or romances or Westerns or sci-fi or whatever. They gravitate to particular things and not others because of the differences in their brains. So this is the first important lesson that I want to establish. Others see the world differently than you do. But why is this true? Why can't we have one really smart person who writes a blog post and says, hey, I think this is the way we should run the country. And all 365 million people read that and say, yeah, it's pretty good. Why are we all so different? This question has been at the heart of a very long-standing debate where people attribute differences to either genetic factors or environmental factors. In other words, the nature versus nurture debate. Why do you argue with your sibling about political issues? Does your sibling have very different genes than you do, even though you have the same parents? Does your sibling have different nurture than you, even though you were raised in the same household? So are we determined by our genetics or our environment? And traditionally, there have been very strong advocates on both sides of this. Well, both of these have something to say. So let's start with genetics. Do genetic differences matter? Heck yeah, they do. Although we're all members of the species Homo sapiens, there are millions of differences in our genomes from person to person. For the cognoscenti, these are single nucleotide polymorphisms or substitution variants or copy number variants and so on. And your genetics matter for who you are. Take just as an example from my book, Incognito, I compiled statistics that if you are a carrier of certain genes, your probability of committing violent crime goes up 882%. So I took statistics from the US Department of Justice and I broke these down into two groups, those who carry the genes and those who do not. And it's a massive difference. Can you guess what this collection of genes is? We summarize it as the Y chromosome. If you have these genes, we call you a male. So genes matter. But it's not all genes. It's also your experiences in the world. We drop into the world with half-baked brains and we absorb everything around us. Everything that you know, that you believe, your language, your culture, your memories, it's all stored in this giant neural network. And how does it get stored? by reconfiguration of the network. This is known as brain plasticity. Brains absorb the world around them, and that's how the world shapes you. We're influenced by our culture, our friends, our neighbors, our generation, and so on. 
So you're shaped by both your genes and your environment, and these are intertwined in very complex ways, such that it's really rare that we can point to one or the other and conclude that it's responsible for something that we see. It's all about what we nowadays call gene-environment interactions. So you've got the genes that you drop into the world with, and then you've got all these experiences, and these intertwine in this complex way. Your experiences actually shape your nervous system and can feed all the way down to the level of which genes are getting expressed and which are getting suppressed. And by the way, you don't choose your genes and you don't choose your childhood experiences. None of that is about choice, but it makes you who you are. Now, these differences can be quite subtle. You can disagree with your sibling politically, even though you're genetically similar and were raised in a similar environment. But small differences can take you off in very different directions. So you're shaped by both your genes and your environment, and hence the nature versus nurture question is dead. And brains end up as different from one another as faces. Just walk along the street and look at how different people's faces are, the variety of faces that you see around you. Well, there's that much variety in brains too. And just as a side note, I can recognize all my students just from their brain scans because brains actually physically come out looking different from one another. Okay, so we've established that people are very different on the inside and given a sense of how that comes about. But you may think, okay, other people are different from me, but what is clear is that I see the truth. And if I could just sit down with them and have them listen to me, or I could just shout in capital letters on Twitter, everyone would see the correctness of my position, right? So the main question that comes up in our lives politically, whether on social media or in dinner conversations, is why can't everyone see the truth? So now we'll turn to act three, where we'll ask, how do you land on your opinions, your notion of the truth? And how accurate and complete is it really? So the critical concept I want to tell you about here is this. Your brain is locked in silence and darkness. And your brain's job is to build an internal model of the outside world so that it understands what is happening out there. So everything in your life, everything about the way the world works is represented in your brain, usually unconsciously. How you deal with people, where your house is, how to operate the appliances in your kitchen, what language you speak and your spouse speaks, how to drive your car. Everything in your life is represented in this internal model. And I'm not going to talk too much about the internal model today, except to say that one of the fascinating things is that usually it's totally unconscious. And I gave an example of this in a recent episode about putting your hands up on an imaginary steering wheel in front of you and pretending that you're driving 30 miles an hour down the road. And I asked you to make a lane change from the center lane into the right lane. And what essentially everyone does with their hands is they turn the steering wheel to the right and back to center. But that would actually steer you off the road and you would crash. When you actually get in the car and watch what your hands are doing, you'll see that the way you make a lane change is by turning to the right back to center, just as far to the left, and then back to center again. That's how you make a lane change. Your brain has made a model of the physics of cars and steering wheels and roads and so on, but you don't even know how you do this, and you didn't even know that your brain had that model. This is the gap between 
what your brain knows under the hood and what your conscious mind has access to. And the point I want to make is that you have this same sort of model about the whole world around you and its political truths. Now, the details of your trajectory in the world up to this moment convince you that you know the truth, even though someone else's internal model might tell them that they know the truth and it might be different. Now, the really important point here, the thing that no one talks about, is that we don't usually take into account how poor our internal models are. Here's just an example. Starting in early 2020, when the pandemic hit, why did all the bank lobbies close? After all, there were lots of other shops that were open. The florist was open, the hair salons were open, and all of these were much smaller spaces than the spacious lobbies of the bank. And it's not that the banks couldn't put up plexiglass in front of the teller's windows. In fact, that was usually already in place. And it's not that the banks wanted to be closed because they still staffed the drive-up windows throughout the day. So what was going on? Most people didn't know why. And this is an example of internal models. If something is not in your model, then it just doesn't strike you. The answer was that in spring of 2020, most of the population began wearing masks and the bankers didn't want masked customers coming through all day. It's a perfect costume for a robbery. So they closed their lobbies. The point is simply that we always think our understanding of the world is complete, but we're always facing situations where we say, oh, I guess I didn't know that. Now it's complete. By the way, the limits of your internal model, this is the engine of comedy. So a comedian will say something like this. I went to the doctor the other day and the doctor said, put your clothes there in the corner next to mine. It's funny and surprising only because your brain makes a full world of assumptions about the doctor and then you realize that your model didn't have all the information. And there are so many examples of the limitations of your model. Imagine I were to draw a handful of diagonal lines on a page and ask you what you see. You'd say diagonal lines. But if I say to you, how many are there here? You'd realize that you don't know the answer and you have to deploy your attention to seek the answer. So this happens to us all the time where we think we have a complete understanding of what's in front of us but a little bit of questioning unmasks that we don't actually have all the details of the picture. And I'm using this all as a metaphor to emphasize the importance of genuine dialogue with other people because sometimes you can't see what questions you haven't asked or the things that you're not even aware you're not aware of. And by genuine dialogue, I don't mean how do I convince the other person that I'm right and they're wrong. I mean listening and considering and questioning and trying where appropriate to change your own mind or to stand in a slightly different viewpoint than you were before. Now, I want to come back to this issue that it's so easy to poke holes in our internal models. And the question I've always wondered is why do we think our models are complete when they lack so many answers? So consider this. Do you know what a bicycle looks like? Of course you do. Now, if you're in a place where you can get out a piece of paper, I'd like you to get it out and sketch a bicycle. Go ahead. And if you can't get the paper, then go ahead and sketch it in the air with your finger. Just the basic outlines of the frame, the wheels, the seat, the handlebars, that's all. Okay, now I hope you'll actually do this because assuming you do, you will find yourself shocked about how poorly you are able to actually reproduce the bike on paper. You think you have your bicycle 
pictured perfectly in your mind, but your model, your internal model is actually quite lousy. For example, does the chain connect to both the front and the back wheel? And what shape is the frame exactly? And how do the handlebars plug into the front wheel? It's shocking because you know what a bicycle looks like, or at least you think you do, but it's actually a big challenge when you really pushed on your understanding. And this is known as the illusion of explanatory depth. Just because you're convinced that your model has the full picture, it doesn't mean that it actually does. So here's another example. Imagine that I ask you if you know how the electoral college works in this country. And you might say, yeah, I know how that works. But now I say, great, please explain it to me. And you might find that you get stuck. You think you know, but as soon as I scratch the surface of something, you find that it's not quite as clear as you suspected. And there are a million examples of this sort of thing. And if you start paying attention, you'll see more and more of the limitations of your knowledge. So it's useful to question ourselves with all of our political opinions about where our knowledge is lacking. Because not knowing information doesn't mean that you don't have a high sense of certainty about it, especially if you really don't know much about a topic at all. My graduate advisor once told me to go to the library to learn about lattice gases, and I had never heard of that at all. So I walked over to the library and I discovered there was half a shelf with books all about lattice gases. And I was shocked because how could smart people have devoted their scientific careers to writing about something that I had never even heard of just 20 minutes before. And this is the kind of lesson that emerges as you mature in the world. But interestingly, it takes a great deal of work to get there. If you've studied less about a subject, you tend to overinflate your knowledge. This is what's known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. So these are a couple of psychologists and they ran studies where they found that if they asked people a bunch of questions about humor or grammar or logic, you then take the people who score at the bottom quartile and they grossly overestimate their performance on the test. Although their test scores put them, let's say, in the 12th percentile, they estimate themselves to be in the 62nd percentile when you ask them, how much do you know about this compared to other people? In other words, the less that you know about a topic, the more confidence you have in your own abilities. What happens is that as you learn more about a topic, your confidence goes down, and it's only much later when you become an expert that it starts to go back up. So now, given everything I've told you so far, I want to return to the cartoon that I described at the beginning of this podcast about the fork in the road where one sign points to complex but right and the other points to simple but wrong. And almost everybody is going in the simple but wrong path except for the few people winding their way up the steep, complex but right path. Now, the cartoon struck me as funny, but perhaps not for the obvious reasons, because when I saw this cartoon on Twitter, I noticed that it had racked up many thousands of likes. So I started to research who exactly were the enthusiasts. And I had a suspicion that I knew the answer, and that turned out to be correct. Each person of whatever political persuasion sees himself in the complex, correct thinkers winding the steep path. Whether you are on the right or the left, whether with the independents or Green Party or Libertarians, whether you're a fan of Antifa or QAnon, 
whether you're a denizen of Wokistan or Magistan, you fundamentally know that you are a person who engages in refined and proper thinking. You appreciate data that is intricate and meaningful, while people on the other side, for reasons that you can only guess, they believe incorrect things. What I want to emphasize is that each person who clicked the thumbs up button knew that he was not like the sheep on the opposite side of the fork. Instead, he possessed an intricate and accurate view of the world. Okay, so which side of the political debate did the cartoonist support? Well, who knows? Who cares? It was presumably one of his most successful cartoons because it was the skeleton key that fit the lock of each reader's internal model. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything, for every passenger, feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected or check out a 
stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moon roof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. So the first step to rising above our internal models is to start watching for these bug traps that lure us in. I just saw an example yesterday, a bumper sticker that read, Make America, America Again. And everyone on the road who saw this bumper sticker presumably thought that sounded great. Why? Because both sides of the political spectrum are equally happy to engage in retrospective romanticization. Liberals and conservatives can equally well reach back in memory to a time that seemed less complicated, a totally illusory era where the nation agreed with the logic of your political viewpoint before the rise of the crazies with whom you now have to deal. So the only thing that the bumper sticker really points back to is the impoverishment of our memories. The cartoon and the bumper sticker, these work because they can mean anything to anyone. And what they reveal is the degree to which we live inside our internal models and we assume everyone shares the same model we do. And anyone who has a different internal model, we tend to demonize. And that's because we believe our models so strongly because that's all we have. Whether that's our religion or our political side of the spectrum, whether we're the communists or the Nazis in 1934, it makes us angry that other people can't see the truth as clearly as we can, and we are suspicious of them. And this leads me to the final chapter of today's episode, which is the notion of empathy. And there's an important aspect of this that's typically overlooked. So I'll illustrate this with a historical example. In the late 1700s, there was a British nobleman named Lord Gordon, who was born into privilege, but he found himself caring deeply about the welfare of the sailors. He was an officer, but he campaigned energetically to improve their conditions. And his empathy was broader than that. When they sailed to Jamaica, he was disgusted by the slavery there and he berated the British governor about it. So here's an example of a guy where everywhere he went, he sought to improve the well-being of those less fortunate. So the question from a neuroscience point of view is why did Lord Gordon care so much for others? And why do any of us help strangers? After all, the driving force of evolution is survival of the fittest, not of the friendliest. Well, fortunately, there's another force at work. Our brains are constantly in the business of simulating the experiences of other people. And under the right circumstances, this leads to empathy, the experiencing of another's emotions. Empathy is what counterbalances our appetite for power and tribalism and violence. Empathy is the glue that binds society together. Our species' dominance is due in part to our empathy, which helps us to cooperate flexibly in large groups. 
Now, how can we study empathy neuroscientifically? So in my lab, we performed a brain imaging study in which you are in the scanner and you see six hands on the screen in front of you. And the computer goes around boop, 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 and randomly picks one of the hands. So one of two things happens. Either the hand gets touched with a Q-tip or it gets stabbed with a syringe needle. And when you see it get stabbed, it's very cringeworthy. And so what we're doing is we're looking in the brain images to understand what is the difference between these two cases that are visually quite similar, but in one of the cases you have this very visceral response. And what we find is that when the hand gets stabbed with the syringe needle, this network of areas in your brain that we summarize as the pain matrix, this comes online. And these areas in your brain are what would come online if your own hand got stabbed. So when you see someone else's hand get stabbed, that activates the same pain matrix. You are not getting hurt, but you are simulating what it would be like to be that person and have your hand get stabbed. This is the neural basis of empathy. Now, if the story ended there, all of us humans would operate like a big cooperative ant colony. But the reality is more complex. So let's return to Lord Gordon. He empathized with sailors and slaves but he had nothing but hatred for his Catholic neighbors. He worked tirelessly to repeal the civil rights of Catholics. And in 1780, Lord Gordon marched a crowd of 50,000 people to the Houses of Parliament in London. And for a week, the mob destroyed Catholic churches and Catholic homes in what came to be known as the Gordon Riots, which was the most destructive domestic upheaval in the history of London. So why did Lord Gordon, a person so capable of empathy, have such antipathy for Catholics? The answer paints a fundamental fact about human nature, which is our tendency to form in-groups and out-groups, groups that we feel attached to and those that we feel opposed to. Our empathy is selective. So especially after the Second World War, psychologists began to study this issue of in-groups and out-groups and how this can so easily lead to violence. And my lab and a lot of others have done a lot of research into this issue of how easily we form in-groups and out-groups. And I'll give you just one example of this. So come back to this experiment with the people in the brain scanner watching the hands get stabbed. Now we take these six hands on the screen and we just add one word labels to each hand. Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Scientologist, Atheist. And now the computer goes around, boop, 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 and it randomly picks a hand, and you see that hand get touched with a Q-tip or stabbed with a syringe needle. And the question is, does your brain care as much if it's an out-group versus your in-group? So we tested people of all different faiths and atheists also, and the result is that you care more about your in-group and you care less about out-groups. When you see the hand get stabbed that is labeled with your in-group, we can measure a very big response in the pain matrix. And when you see a hand get stabbed that has one of the other labels on it, we see a very small response in the pain matrix. Your brain just doesn't care as much. 
This is a large effect and it's depressing that it's true, but it's just the way humans are. We care a lot about our in-groups. And these are just single word labels. I mean, all the hands look the same and they just have different colored wristbands on them so you can distinguish them. But it turns out we are really, really sensitive to these labels. So the issue of empathy is subtle and complex. With just a single word label, your brain can feel more or less empathy for someone, can run the imagery about them and their pain more or less vividly. Now, what's fascinating is how rapidly our levels of empathy can change. So we next took the exact same subject and we presented them with a single sentence. The year is 2025 and these three groups have teamed up against these three groups. And so now you find your in-group teamed up on one side or the other. The computer has picked these sides randomly. And so you've got this team and the other team. So what do you think happens? You care now about your allies, the two groups who have randomly gotten lumped in there with your in-group. So suddenly when you see their hand get stabbed, you have a larger empathy response than you did just a moment ago when you didn't care about them. You still don't care about the outgroups on the other side, but you care about these allies now more, which is not surprising. Like, for example, when the Soviets fought side by side with the Americans in World War II, they had been bitter enemies before. Then World War II happened and suddenly they're allies. They're fighting together. They're clapping each other on the back and sharing cigarettes and so on. And then the war ends and now they're enemies again. Now take a moment to think about your own level of empathy towards others. Imagine that you see a 75-year-old man get hit in the face and his nose gets cut and he's bleeding. Do you feel an empathic sting with that? Okay, well now imagine that he's at a rally for Joe Biden or for Donald Trump or just anyone you agree or disagree with. Is your empathy any different? And if so, does that challenge your view of yourself as an empathic person? If you felt unequal responses in those two situations, a Biden rally or a Trump rally, you're not alone. People generally assess their own empathy by thinking about those in their in-group. I've always been struck by this in action-adventure movies when we see a person get hurt. If it's the protagonist, we really wince. But if it's the antagonist, and he's falling off a 100-foot cliff to his death, we feel just fine about that, possibly happy about that. So what this means is that we have the capacity to feel someone else's pain in different ways, depending on whether they're a member of our tribe or not. And the tribal tendencies of humans, this can incite murder and torture from the Spanish Inquisition to the Rwandan genocide. This can buoy the appeal of nationalist visions from Hitler's final solution to Mao's cultural revolution. So given how deeply our biases are ingrained, the question is, are we doomed to repeat these kinds of atrocities forever? So I'm going to suggest perhaps not. I'm going to give five strategies here to narrow the empathic divide between people. The first thing has to do with just understanding our own biases. We can increase our awareness of our own internal thought patterns so that we recognize our partisanship as we experience it. For example, in our social echo chambers, we tend to 
accept the logic of our in-group and we reject the logic of out-groups. And we're also predisposed to help those in our in-groups rather than those a little farther away who might need the help more. Understanding the biases behind our actions in this way can help lead us to more altruistic behavior. The second strategy for narrowing the empathic divide has to do with building a better model of other people. So instead of concluding that your brother or your coworker is a troll or an idiot, just try taking a crack at understanding his point of view. It's not the same as agreeing with his point of view, but it's trying to step into that person's world to avoid the oversimplifications that we typically accept. And by the way, this is often accomplished through art and literature, which has for a long time waged a behind-the-scenes battle against dehumanization. Theater and books and movies, this lets people step into the shoes of other people. And in the 1440s, when the printing press was invented, this allowed stories to spread widely. So, for example, when Harriet Beecher Stowe published the anti-slavery novel Uncle Tom's Cabin in 1852, readers stepped inside a shack that they otherwise wouldn't have ever entered. And once in, it was no longer so easy to relegate the characters to an outgroup. The third strategy is to learn and resist the tactics of dehumanization. There are a lot of tricks that governments and propagandists employ, and I'm going to do a different episode on that. But I'll mention here that one common ploy is what's called moral pollution, in which a group is socially smeared by association with something repulsive, like vermin or insects or anything that envelops them in a negative emotional cloud. Once you have a negative emotional reaction to a group, it becomes harder to hear their perspectives. So when you can recognize that a person is being attacked for his identity rather than his arguments, you can better defend yourself against this trick. The fourth strategy has to do with blinding your biases. So design processes and organizations that remove the chance that prejudices interfere with your judgment. For example, a lot of software companies here in Silicon Valley, they'll ask job candidates to submit code rather than to show up in person. And many orchestras have blind auditions, which means they audition people behind a curtain so you can't see the gender or the race of the person who's looking for the job. You're just listening to the music. And in the same way, many universities have a need-blind application process so they can separate intelligence from financial considerations. So the idea is wherever biases can be subconsciously triggered, it's best if you just remove the opportunity. And the fifth strategy, I think, is the least intuitive, and that is to entangle group memberships. So what I mean is work to ensure that communities are intertwined. So to see how this would work in practice, consider the five tribes of the Iroquois Native Americans who fought intensely with each other in the 15th century. So they had a new leader come in named Daganawida, who came to be known as the Great Peacemaker. And what he did is he assigned each tribe member to one of nine different clans, the wolf clan or the bear clan or the turtle clan or sandpiper, deer, so on. 
So members of each clan had representation from all the different tribes and these relationships were cross-cutting. So I say to you, hey, tribe member, let's go attack that other tribe over there. And you say, oh, you know, I would, but I'm a member of the Eagle clan and so is he. And so I'm not really that interested in attacking him anymore. So by emphasizing the overlapping dual allegiances to tribe and to clan, Deganawida complicated the notions of us and them. And in this way, he was able to defang the intertribal warfare. So what we've seen in today's episode is how different we are on the inside, and yet how strongly we believe our own truths, even though our knowledge of everything is so impoverished. And yet we all walk around with the impression that if we could just sit down with another person on the other side, we could show them the truth. So if you have the same opinions as everyone else in your life, great. But I hope you don't. I hope you can take the opportunity to dig deep and find out how the other folks in your life see the world and listen to them. It's not the same as agreeing with them or giving in to them, but it is acknowledging that your point of view doesn't have a lock on the absolute truth. And it's allowing that the most important thing you can learn is an ability to dialogue in conditions of disagreements and discomfort. It's the most important thing that you can do for each other and for your own brain. As Voltaire said, uncertainty is an uncomfortable position, but certainty is an absurd position. So I've given five directions for helping us to learn how to bridge that gap, not by assuming we're right, but by having the intellectual humility to realize that it's a big pluralistic world out there and that everyone, including you, has a model of the truth. And that only by adopting the stance of genuine dialogue and understanding your own biases and the possibility that we might be wrong, can we hope to move things forward. If you're interested in learning more, find further readings on these topics at eagleman.com slash podcast. And if you have questions, comments, thoughts, email us at podcast at eagleman.com where we've been getting great responses. Watch full video episodes and leave comments on YouTube at Inner Cosmos Pod. Until then, this is David Eagleman signing off from the Inner Cosmos. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls 
offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. What's out there is unknown. So at UC San Diego, out we go. Because to take on the challenges of the here and now, you got to get your feet wet, your eyes open, and your mind out there, way out there. Turning the unknown into cures, culture, and connections with each step forward. So pack a bag, a notebook, and some sandals, and get ready to look far and think further. UC San Diego. Learn more at ucsd.edu.